0: going to be reading from psalm chapter 16 verses 9 through 11 therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices my flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to sheol or let your holy one see corruption you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, it truly is a joy to be gathered here this morning, lifting up our praise to you and enjoying fellowship with one another. Thank you that in you and only you, we are secure through the life that you give us in Jesus. Bless Michael as he brings your word this morning, and I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to be responsive to your word, growing to be a little bit more like Jesus. In his name, amen. Amen. Thank you,
1: Vic. I love Vic's booming voice, and Vic, I'm glad you've chosen to use your gift for good, Good morning, church. Good morning. Two weeks ago, my son Caleb and I decided to climb Middle Teton. We set our alarms. I appreciate that too. We set our uh, our alarms uh, for 1:30 a.m. in the morning, which I guess normal people would call that the middle of the night. Uh, we got to the trailhead about four or so, and by 4:30 uh, we were hiking. We had our headlamps on. Looking, uh, looking around, making sure we didn't sneak up on any bears. One of the advantages of starting a hike before the sun comes up is that you get to watch the sunrise. And so for this hike, we were about 2,000 feet up. Uh had a beautiful view of the sun coming up uh, right uh, behind Jackson Hole there. The Alpenglow was on the Tetons, it was just absolutely stunning. So anyway, we continued, we snacked our way up the, up the mountain, and when you climb Middle Teton, you're climbing up to the saddle that sits between South Teton and Middle Teton. So that's where we were headed, and um, as we were going, the wind was picking up like crazy. It, was, it got worse and worse and worse to the point that we were crossing the boulder field, it was literally knocking us over. We were catching ourselves with our hands on the boulders, we fought through it, we got up to the saddle, hid behind this rock, it was totally inadequate shelter from the wind, and we sat there, I told Caleb, I said, I don't think there's any way we can safely summit Middle Teton today, I just don't see it happening, you know, maybe we can do it with your brother again uh, next summer. Anyway, about that time, this man came trotting down from the, from, clearly coming down from Middle Teton. And we were talking to him, and he said, uh, yeah, you know, actually, the wind is not that bad. It's the worst right here at the saddle. So Caleb and I figured, well, there's nothing to lose. Let's go ahead, <laughs> climb up. That wasn't actually supposed to be funny. I don't <laughs> uh, Hopefully my real jokes don't fall flat. Anyway, um, so we decided to go ahead and, and, and climb um, we made it to the couloir, to the got to the top. Incredible views from up there. Grand Teton is just right there to the north. Feels like it's a stone's throw away. South Teton, of course, is the other direction. Looking over toward Idaho, you can see Hurricane Pass and, and Table Rock, if any of you guys are, have been up there. Um, just incredible. you got mountains stretching off into every direction. Just absolutely beautiful. Now, that was... A nice story, wasn't it? But how did I begin? I began by telling you what our destination was. Caleb and I decided to climb Middle Teton. It sets the stage for the remainder of the story. We're going to walk through Psalm 16 this morning, but to help us recognize the flow, it's important to first consider where Psalm 16 is going to finish. This is why I asked Vic to read the last three verses of this psalm. It closes with the celebration of salvation. The path of life, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. If I tell you the objective, then, pardon me, where we're going to end up, then the journey leading to that destination has a bit more context. So I've been told I need to have a main idea for a message, so here it is. A messianic psalm of comfort leading our hearts toward the path of life, fullness of joy, and pleasures forevermore. So now we know where we're headed in Psalm 16. Let's read it in its entirety. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land they are the excellent ones and whom is all my delight the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply their drink offerings of blood i will not pour out or take their names on my lips the lord is my chosen portion and my cup you hold my lot the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed i have a beautiful inheritance i bless the lord who gives me counsel In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I have cleverly labeled the first part of this message, the beginning. <laughs> it's a wonder I've never been asked to preach before. In the first four verses of Psalm 16, we find submission, humility, and confession. Confession. Psalm 16 begins with a cry, Preserve me, O God, save me, O God. We don't know the circumstances that precipitated David writing the psalm, but immediately we get a sense of where the psalmist's heart is at, a posture of submission. If we view this psalm as a journey toward salvation, it is telling that the first emotion expressed is one of humility. The word that David uses for God is El, which emphasizes God's strength. Save me, O God, O strong one. At some point in our Christian lives, we came to realize that we cannot save ourselves. How long does it take for an individual's humility to overcome pride and cry out to God? And just a warning to those who are convinced they can go at it alone, this world has a knack for humbling us. Even the proudest person can be humbled and forced to their knees pleading for God's help. And what does David desire? Refuge. Protection from the troubles and from the sorrows and from the anxieties of this world. A couple of examples come to my mind when I hear the word refuge our church supports the city of refuge, a men's shelter downtown. To enter those doors requires a heart of humility, a recognition that I can't do it on my own. I need help. My wife and I had the pleasure and the privilege of hiking for 11 days through the Dolomites in Italy last month. Every night, we would stay in a refuge. In Italian, they refer to them as refugios, everything sounds cooler in Italian for some reason. Anyway, one day near the end of the trip, we were caught in this this nasty, ugly storm for hours. We were hiking along the the side of a mountain. There's quite a bit of exposure. The rain had completely drenched us through. Um, The thunder was cracking all around us, uh, and the lightning strikes seemed to be getting closer and closer. And in the middle of this chaos, we were past... By this Italian girl. And and when she passed passed me, she stopped. And she had these huge, terrified eyes. And she looked at me and said in very proper English, How do you see our situation? (laughs) Well, in that situation, she very much understood the value of the refuge that awaited us that evening. Do you want to find refuge in God. Psalm 62.8 tells us that we find refuge in God through prayer. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. We do find refuge in God through prayer, and we also find refuge through the unity of community, the fellowship of the saints. When I find refuge in God, I'm not really there all by myself, am I? As Jesus prays in John seventeen eleven, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, that's us, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. No matter how confident we are that we can handle whatever life throws at us, at some point the world will humble you and me. But then, once we've entered a place of refuge, the Lord's refuge, we find safety and we find comfort, maybe even one another, leading us to a state of rest. Our second verse of Psalm 16 reads, I say to the Lord... You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, in just a few short words, David is gone from a cry for help to finding refuge in God. Once he's humbled himself and he's found refuge, then right away we see confession. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. It's difficult to confess until we've humbled our hearts. Thinking about the city of refuge, I think once a man has made the decision to enter those doors, it should be much easier for, them, for him to confess his situation and his needs. And here, what is David confessing? David, the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. I have no good apart from you. That's a pretty frank self-assessment. Is man capable of good? Of course, David's not saying, I'm no good. There's good in all of us, but as Christians, it's important that we realize that the source of good in us comes from being created in the image of God. A lack of recognition of this is what underpins all humanistic philosophies, the idea that man alone is good enough To find his place in the world and save himself. So, submission and humility prompting us to confession kind of sounds like the type of fertile soil from which a spirit can lead a person to salvation, doesn't it? Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Praise God. Looking back at Psalm 16, there's a definite shift in tone with these next two verses. Verse 3 As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. As I studied verses 3 and 4, I had to consider whether the point of view had changed here from David to God. At this point, I do believe this is still David speaking. He has, however, quickly shifted from crying out to the Lord for his salvation to recognizing That there is a dichotomy in the world. There are sheep and there are goats. God delights in the sheep, his saints. We find in Psalm 18, 19 that God rescued me because he delighted in me. If God delights in the saints, then why wouldn't we as believers do so as well? I hope that this morning you are here delighting in the fellowship of the saints. But while the saints have accepted God as their Lord, others have refused to submit to his lordship instead of humbling themselves before God. They stand defiant, running after other gods. You are not my Lord. Defiance has consequences. We do need to remind ourselves, however, of the more subtle ways in which we frustratingly continue to rebel against our king. As Christians, we do still chase false idols, do we not? We chase after the lusts of our heart. We put our work above God. We desire material possessions over our relationship with God and family and friends. Or we value the image of our perfect family above all else. Do we even realize they were running after false gods, a disturbing question to ask oneself, but one worth asking: What's most important to me? Where do I invest my time and energy? Are we open to asking those who are closest to us if our lives reflect our Christian values? It's a challenging introspective, but to close out these two verses on a more uplifting note, remember that one day our sanctification will be complete. Loving God and loving others will be our nature. Okay, more impressive creativity here on my part after much deliberation. I settled on titling the middle part of Psalm 16, The Middle. (laughs) So, let's consider the themes of contentment, gratitude, and steadfastness, beginning with verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I love these verses. The overarching emotion here is contentment. One might not immediately recognize this, but David is likely referring back to God's apportionment of Canaan to the 12 tribes. Portion, lot, lines, inheritance. When the Israelites conquered Canaan, God told them that they would receive an inheritance of land. Joshua 14, verses 1 through 3 Reads, These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. Do you recall what the Levites' inheritance was? Numbers 18.20, And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Now, as Pastor Jeff gently reminded me, In Numbers 35, the Lord did command the Israelites to give the Levites real estate in the cities and some of the surrounding pasture lands since the Israelites had refused to do so of their own accord. But when all this land was being handed out to the other tribes, I do wonder whether some of the Levites grumbled about their inheritance. So you're saying there's no land for me. David's response, however, is to describe this inheritance as beautiful. And looking ahead to the new covenant, we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that the Holy Spirit guarantees our inheritance. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Turning back to Psalm 16, in verse 6, David declares that the lines of life have fallen in pleasant places. Lines imply limitations and borders. Are we content with the lines, the limitations that God has placed in our lives. There is this fascinating uh, research study that was done uh, to, uh, to assess how the presence of a fence or the lack of a fence around the playground affected that group of preschoolers. So when a group of preschoolers is taken to a playground where there's no fence, They tend to huddle around the adult in charge. But when you take that same group of kids to a playground with a fence, they feel free to play and explore within those set boundaries. Now, there's a not-so-subtle parenting tip here on setting boundaries for your children. They may not think they want rules, but you and I know better. But I think there's also a comfort for us adults to recognize that God has placed boundaries in our lives, and those borders create a pleasant place for us to worship God throughout our lives. Do not covet. Instead, choose contentment. Along with David's expression of contentment, I get a sense of his gratitude toward God for his loving kindness. I've often told my kids and my students that gratitude is the launching point for so many virtuous behaviors. It's great medicine for countering a sense of entitlement. So let's practice gratitude in all situations, including now. First, I'm grateful for the leaders of this church. We have four pastors who love the Lord and love one another. Do you sometimes wonder if our pastors are really who they appear to be? And do they really get along with one another? I've gotten to know them pretty well over the years. And yes, they are four genuine dudes and pastors. Thanks, (laughs) Tricia. Incidentally, incidentally, if you're wondering where they all are, Joe mentioned this. Um, We're not doing like a church makeover or anything. They're all at leadership training with the Nine Marks organization uh, and Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. They'll be back in a couple of days. Uh, When I consider our church leaders, uh, I also think about Beth Wickland, our church administrator. I realize this is very cliche, but Beth is truly the model of a servant leader. She juggles a million responsibilities without ever complaining and from behind the scenes consistently serves all of us with excellence. We have 50 discipleship groups at this church. Think about that. That means there are at least 50 of you who have stepped up to lead And that doesn't even include the small army of Sunday school teachers and youth group leaders. It's incredible. Second suggestion for gratitude, directed to our young people, is to appreciate that you have a parent who loves you. Who takes the time to invest in your well-being, whether you recognize that as such or not. Not Every child in this world has a parent to take care of them. In fact, there are untold millions of children in this world, possibly tens of millions, who have no parent watching out for them. All around the world, these social orphans are <clears throat> these social orphans are scavenging the city streets for survival. I want to say that these millions of orphans are simply waiting for a permanent, nurturing family, but I doubt that most of them understand what a nurturing family even means. Students, be grateful that you have a parent who cares for you. We all need to embrace gratitude, every day, every occasion. A heart of gratitude offers us a constant reminder to come, And delight in God. Gratitude feeds our contentment, curbing us from careless complacency on the one hand and selfish grumbling on the other. Psalm 16, verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, in the night also my heart instructs me. David continues his spirit of gratitude in this verse, praising the Lord specifically for providing counsel. For David, God provided counsel through the Torah, God's moral instruction given to Israel. Today, we can likewise praise God for the gift of his word. But are we truly thankful for the Bible? How do we treat this gift? Do we dust it off on Sundays or do we revere the gift of instruction? If the wisest person in the world came to me and said, hey, I'm the wisest person in the world, which is a huge red flag, so I get that, (laughs) but humor me for this illustration. I'm the wisest person in the world, and I wrote down my insight, my instructions, on how you should steward the life you've been given. If you read my book and follow it, you'll find the path of life, fullness of joy, and pleasures forevermore. How would you respond? Cool. Thanks. Uh, You know what I'm going to do. I'm going to set this up on my bookshelf, and I'm going to admire the cover and the exceptional binding. Um, Sometimes I'm even going to carry it around so people can see that I am very much aware of the path of life, the fullness of joy, and pleasures forevermore. No, of course not. And the Bible's not coming from some person who thinks he's super wise. It's coming from the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the cosmos. What's a reasonable response to receiving this gift of instruction? I'm going to study it. I'm going to listen to others who have studied it. I'm going to get together with friends to study it. If you're not currently studying the Bible in some capacity, I have some potentially life-changing news for you. At Christ Community Church, we have those 50 discipleship groups and classes that I just mentioned. We just concluded our discipleship fair the past two weeks, but it's certainly not too late to get involved in one of these groups. And I think we still have some booklets that are sitting out there in the Grand Hall, and you can always uh, reach out to Pastor Patrick and uh, he can help you out with that as well. Just not today, because he's not here. <laughs> okay, let's take a look at the second half of verse 7. There's an also. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and also my heart instructs me in the night. How is David's heart instructing him in the night? I believe this is more than just personal contemplation. The Holy Spirit is active, certainly for Christians today. Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. That's encouraging. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he... Who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That is comforting. Just very quickly, it's also worth noting the phrase in the night. It's my understanding that in 1000 BC, there was no electricity. So, night was an opportune time to pray with fewer distractions. We also have a solid precedent for nighttime prayer in Luke 6.12. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Do your best to find a regular time in your day, sometime when you have fewer distractions, whether it's morning or night, or sometime between. Looking back at verse 7, I do want to offer an important word of caution. The instruction of our heart needs to be held in tension with Jeremiah seventeen nine, which warns us that the heart is deceitful above all things. The world bombards us with this message to follow our heart. I Googled this, and I was just, like, overwhelmed by the response. But here's a few things, uh, a few quotes that I found. Believe in yourself and follow your heart. Follow your heart and you will never get lost. There are no rules. Just follow your heart. That last one's from Robin Williams. Do we just blindly follow our heart? How do we know if our heart is trying to deceive us? Well, Remember the also that connects the two halves of verse 7. Does what your heart tell you align with Scripture? If your heart is telling you that you should pursue an extramarital affair, you'll find that Scripture solidly contradicts that suggestion. Probably not from the Spirit. If your heart tells you to empty your child's college savings in order to buy a fancy new sports car, consider whether Scripture aligns with your heart. If your heart is telling you to invite a struggling friend out for coffee so that you can share hope with that friend, that might be from the Spirit. The instruction of our heart must align with Scripture. Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. When I was a kid, our family would head down to Galveston Beach, which is just outside of Houston. And I loved going out in the water and playing all day. And almost every trip, We would play this game where we would go into, like, waist-deep water, and we'd dig our feet down into the sand a little bit, and we'd plant our feet there, and the goal of the game was to stay, keep your feet planted in that one spot as long as you could. So you'd have waves crashing into you, knocking you backwards, and so you're kind of pushing yourself forward, and of course the undercurrent would come in, and so you're going the other way. Inevitably, it really wasn't all that long before we had to give in to the power of the waves and and pick up our feet. Otherwise, we would basically drown. Anyway, this is the visual I have when I read about not being shaken. It was implanted, it was impossible for me to keep my feet planted for very long, but if I had someone, let's say Jesus at my right hand, holding me in place, I could have withstood those waves forever. And not only that, but how much more restful would it be knowing that you have someone at your side to keep you grounded and standing firm? This is the choice that David makes. The Lord is always before him and at his right hand. And hey, he can be in both places because he's omnipresent. How about that? (laughs) Verse 8 ends with such confidence, such steadfastness, which leads directly to the celebration of the concluding verses where we find joy, faith, and salvation. So beginning with verse 9, we read, Therefore, therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Does it feel a little bit like David is just running out of words. The psalm begins with a humble cry, submitting to the Lord and confessing unworthiness, then moves to contentment, gratitude, praise, then a steadfast commitment. That therefore signals that David's now bringing the psalm to a conclusion where he cannot but express his joy. He started with this cry, Preserve me, O God. And God has answered his plea, and then some. My flesh dwells secure. These aren't exactly words that regularly inhabit my thoughts, but I do resonate with the idea. If I'm grounded in God's counsel and love, then I have nothing to fear with regards to my flesh. I don't want... A debilitating disease, but if that's my lot which God is holding, verse 5, I can trust in him. James tells me that I should even find joy in those trials, as difficult as that might seem. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to shield, or let your Holy One see corruption. What is this? I'm reading Psalm 16. I feel like I'm tracking with David pretty well. And then, considering his context and his circumstances, David makes this wild proclamation. It's like when you're cruising down the highway and you're seeing exactly what you expect to see, and then you get to a construction zone and they do that lane shift thing where you have to go over the rumble strips that rattle the whole car, you know, and the kids, like, look up, like, are we still on the road? We used to have this golden retriever, and she would just look straight down at the floorboard with (laughs) her ears flopped over, like, what's happening here? Um, Anyway, up until this point, the focus seems to be on this life, doesn't it? In the previous verse, in verse 9, the psalmist refers to my flesh, but now... David shifts to my soul. This is something different. Not abandoning my soul to Sheol, the abode of the wicked after death. This is something new, something amazing. It's an extraordinary claim coming from David. What confidence, what faith David has to declare that he'll be rescued from death. He has complete faith that death has no dominion over him. How can we not admire the boldness of his faith? With the fullness of time, we now recognize Psalm 16 as a messianic psalm who is the Holy One, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he clearly articulates the fuller meaning of David's psalm. Acts chapter 2 Verses 22 to 32. There's a whole lot of twos going on there. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed By the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and here, Peter quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter continues, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died I love this quote from Leupold summarizing the boldness of David's faith. What David concluded in the logic of faith, what David concluded in the logic of faith reached a marvelous fulfillment in the resurrection of Christ for every believer. Christ's resurrection has vindicated David's bold assertions of faith. And now, we arrive at the promised celebration. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is this not an expression of the promised land? Of salvation. How incredible is it that in this psalm, just as we're reaching this final life-giving proclamation, the path of life, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, we see Jesus, the true Joshua, who leads us to the promised land. God has made known to us the path of life. The path of life centers on the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because of his love for us, our perfect king, And our infinitely powerful yet personal creator has offered his own life on the cross to satisfy God's justice and thereby open the door to the gift of salvation, the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Upon accepting the gift of salvation, we find true joy in the presence of God the Father Christ the Son, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this joy doesn't end upon our death. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. As followers, we have the same hope of resurrection. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We find true pleasure in God's presence, being at his right hand, not the counterfeit pleasures that the world offers us. will experience this true pleasure in resurrected bodies in the new Jerusalem forevermore. Forevermore. What better way to close out this psalm? The path of life, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Are any of you seeking these things? I am, sign me up. If you have not put your faith in Jesus for eternal salvation, there are many in this church who would love to come alongside you, help you with your questions, perhaps your doubts. Don't suppress that small urge, that spark you feel in your heart and your mind. Reach out. To those who have put their faith in Jesus for eternal salvation, embrace humility, cultivate a heart of gratitude, study His Word and spend time in prayer, remain steadfast, and enjoy the blessings of contentment and joy. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for the encouragement you offer to us in this psalm and throughout your word. We thank you for the patient kindness you show to us. For the gift of salvation through your son, offering us the path of life, fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Bless our pastors as they continue to grow in their knowledge of you, and we pray for their safe travels back home. Bless our congregation as we worship you throughout this week and the pleasant places that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.